Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. Welcome to the era of S&P 5000. The S&P 500 stock index rose above 5,000 points last week for the first time ever. This week, there's a big slate of economic data on the way. We're expecting the January U.S. retail sales report, which will give us the first look at whether consumers have kept up their strong spending in 2024. We'll also get the National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index, the University of Michigan's Consumer Confidence Index, and reports from the New York and Philadelphia Federal Reserve Banks on business and manufacturing. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again. When it comes to what's moving markets, it is all about inflation. And we'll get the CPI inflation report on Wednesday. With just about everyone on Wall Street making bets based on when the Fed will move next, this week's data will be key. So we are going to take a deep dive into what Wednesday's report could tell us and what to look for. We'll also talk about the billion-dollar shift in Valentine's Day spending this year that could give a big boost to companies like eBay. And I'm going to tell you guys why I love Valentine's Day. Or maybe why I do not love it at all. Stay tuned. But let's start with stocks. This will be a big data week, but it's also expected to be a big earnings week. With six of the magnificent seven tech giants having reported their earnings this season, investors are turning their attention back to companies that are driven by consumer spending, the heart of the U.S. economy. The market will be awaiting earnings reports from Marriott, John Deere, Coca-Cola, and Kraft Heinz this week. But there's one report that I think will take the economy's temperature better than any other. DoorDash. Food delivery is a luxury. You pay additional fees and higher prices because someone has to pick up your food and bring it to you. And Americans are supposed to be cutting back on luxuries, right? That's what we've heard from economists and a bevy of CEOs. But over the last year, DoorDash has continued to defy what's supposed to be. The company has beaten Wall Street's earnings estimates for the last four quarters and beat its earnings per share estimate for the third quarter by almost 95%. I should point out that by beat estimates, I mean that the company lost less money than analysts were predicting, not that they actually made a profit. But on Wall Street, a beat is a beat. Having done all that, DoorDash could now be facing a real threat to its business model. New York recently passed a law that requires food delivery workers be paid around 50 cents for every minute they spend on a trip, or nearly $18 an hour as a minimum wage. DoorDash, along with Uber Eats and Grubhub, have sued the city, But the law is still in place, and others like it could be coming. The Biden administration also recently enacted a rule that sets stricter standards for when workers can be classified as independent contractors. So what does all this mean for DoorDash, a company with a market cap that has doubled and a stock price that has climbed by close to 90% over the past year? And should investors in companies like Uber or others in the growing delivery space be nervous? I'm joined by Oppenheimer & Company Managing Director and Head of Internet Research Jason Helfstein to get answers to those questions and more. 
He's got an outperform rating on DoorDash. He says Oppenheimer will be adjusting their price target after the company's scheduled earnings report on Thursday. So, Jason, I want to ask you this. I mean, is DoorDash still a $43 billion company if it has to pay all of its drivers, its dashers, minimum wage, workers' comp, set up unemployment benefits, and things like that? Ultimately, what would happen is you would knock out some amount of part-time workers is what would happen. Deliveries would take longer and they would cost more. So in other words, somebody who's like, I want to work two hours a day for DoorDash probably wouldn't be able to do it. Right, right. But doesn't that then hurt DoorDash's business? That assumes they eat it. No pun intended. What if they just pass on the cost to the business or the consumer? Or they just have less delivery people and the deliveries take longer. Right. If the deliveries take longer and they're more expensive, aren't I less inclined to buy from DoorDash? Maybe. But probably why the stock has done so well in the past year is that as consumer spending slowed down due to the impact of inflation, or consumers had to ultimately choose how to absorb inflation, there was a view that like food delivery we know is more expensive. Most restaurants mark up the price on the delivery menu, plus you're paying delivery fees, plus hopefully you're tipping your delivery person. That is, you know, call it 20 to 30% more expensive than if you called the restaurant place the order and picked up your food yourself, right? So there was a view that like that that consumers probably would cut back on food delivery and it didn't happen. And there was been different theories. Well, like the explosion in online gaming and people don't want to leave the couch. I think at the end of the day, this is a reasonably low cost luxury and that consumers like it. So if then the consumer had to wait an extra 15 minutes for their food, would they go out and go get it themselves. Because none of the data suggests that consumers are going to cook for themselves, right? Like we see <laughs> yeah, in 2021, yeah. U.S. food and drink sales were up 29% in the U.S., right? Because that was, you know, that was everybody like locked in at home. Mm-hmm. And Dash grew 70%, their, their gross order value, and Uber Eats in the U.S. was 62%, right? So then we came into 2022, U.S. food and drink sales were up 16%, and then DoorDash was up 22%. And then in 2023, this is our estimate, but the industry is about 12 and DoorDash is still going to be about 21%, right? So they're doing something clearly that is keeping those consumers engaged with all this inflation that uh, consumers had to deal with in 2023. So if ultimately you had to figure out how to absorb another, let's call it 15% of costs, do you then split that three ways? So the consumer pays like, 4% more, 5% more, the restaurant pays 5% more, and DoorDash has to absorb 5%. Would that ruin their business? Probably not. Would it ruin it? No. But is it still a $43 billion company at that point? I mean, you could have a debate on should it be a $43 billion company, you know, even today, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm assuming because you have a buy rating on the stock, you assume it is worth $43 billion. It trades at a higher valuation than um, Airbnb or Uber. So, you know, the market basically is has looked at the execution of DoorDash and thinks that they will continue to execute at a above industry level. And, and that's reflecting the valuation. And you agree that that would continue even with some of these changes to the way that its drivers are categorized? Correct. Because I ultimately don't think that you'll end up with a kind of national ruling. Ultimately, you know, you have 
certain states who want more worker protection than others. And that's probably how this is going to play out. And then even within those states, you have certain cities within, right? Like, think about it. Like in New York City, the rules probably should be different than, you know, Albany, New York. That is a suburban market and there's different factors at play. All right. I want to ask you about a different potential threat to DoorDash's business. Uh, Moffat Nathanson analyst said in September that food delivery was threatened by this resumption of student loan payments. Clearly, we've seen that didn't play out, but they called it one of the most discretionary behaviors of an average consumer. Is there a potential or are you worried about consumers pulling back? Are you worried about if we have a sort of slowdown in the economy that delivery could be one of the the places that's hit hardest? I mean, I think that's been a concern. And I think the fact that you haven't seen it means it's probably not any more susceptible than anything else. Um, Because you would have seen in the second half of 23 with consumers, or or even most of 23, with consumers absorbing inflation, that they would have slowed down. And again, on a year-over-year basis in the U.S., you know, DoorDash is GOV hasn't really slowed down. It's been pretty mm. stable. So, and sorry, when uh, you say GOV, what uh, gross order value. Okay, so just how much they're making comes in the spending by the consumer receipts, the amount of food you purchased. Mm-hmm. That hasn't come down, right? The change in that growth rate has not slowed down. I mean, like a point or so, but but nothing meaningful. Meanwhile, like if you look at core retail sales, um, have slowed down. It seems like you feel pretty good about DoorDash being in a strong place. What's the biggest question you'd like to have answered from this week's earnings report? So the business continues to show very high incremental profitability. And ultimately, what are they going to do with that profitability? So do they invest that in growing faster in their existing areas? Or do they invest that money in new verticals um, that might be international, that might be non-food delivery, things like you know retail um, grocery, or do they just, you know, let it fall to the bottom line? I mean, our sense of the culture is like, this is a company that's more focused on growth. So I think their goal is not to just have margins continue to go up and ultimately have a, you know, the high quality problem of what do you do with all your cash? But ultimately, I think they want to build a bigger business and, and that's probably what they'll do with it. Right now, the business footprint hasn't really changed in the past year. Yeah. DoorDash hasn't been delivering positive earnings though. So, well, you, part of the fa- that has to do with their international business. So if we look at the business on a consolidated basis, um, they are cash flow profitable, right? So they generate cash flow. But yes, on a mm-hmm. gap earnings basis, they are right. not yet profitable. My guess is they'll be profitable probably in 2025 in a gap earnings. But they're going to generate probably in 2024 a billion and a half of cash flow and over two billion in 2025, but that includes international, which is losing money. So, if you just looked at the U.S. restaurant business, the U.S. restaurant business would be easily several billion dollars in profitability. So, part of what the market's doing is, in some cases, they're saying, "Look, we're not going to penalize DoorDash for what they're losing internationally because over time, that will become profitable." That was Jason Helfstein, Managing Director and Head of Internet Research for Oppenheimer & Company. A quick note, when Jason refers to gap earnings, he's talking about the generally accepted accounting principles used to value companies. It's the set of accounting rules set by the Financial Accounting Standards Board that are designed to ensure companies' financial statements are consistent and comparable. 
According to Gap standards, DoorDash has not had a profitable quarter since it debuted as a public company in December 2020. Up next, WSJ Markets reporter Eric Wallerstein is here to explain why this week's CPI inflation report could really rock the market. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. We talk about a lot of data here at Take on the Week. GDP, Fed manufacturing surveys, PMI business surveys, home sales, consumer credit, and it all helps us paint a picture of what's happening in the economy. But nothing is more important right now than inflation. At the Fed's last meeting, Chair Jerome Powell signaled that the central bank is ready to cut interest rates. Just not yet. Policymakers need to see more data that show inflation is moving consistently and sustainably towards their 2% target. Right now, rates are the highest they've been in 22 years. But investors are betting it won't be that way for long and that Jerome and the gang are going to start cutting rates soon. That can't happen unless and until inflation starts moving sustainably sustainably down to 2%. You heard the chairman. Last month, the CPI report showed inflation was at 3.4% on an annual basis. That was up from the previous month's report showing inflation at 3.1% and the opposite of the direction that the Fed wants to see inflation go. Now that we've set the stage, let's talk about CPI and what comes next for inflation. I'm joined by Eric Wallerstein, a markets reporter at The Journal. Eric, it feels like this CPI report that we're expecting this week is an important one. What are you hearing about the stakes for this report from the money managers and analysts you talk to? Yeah, so generally, we all came into the year expecting a sort of soft landing. Inflation's going to cool. The economy will cool a little bit, but not too much. Now the game has kind of changed. Where growth is so strong, there's definitely some analysts and investors worried, do we get some sort of repercolating inflation that comes back and makes the Fed's job a little more challenging. Mm, Repercolating. So we're in essence kind of reassessing where we are and that changes the expectations. Is that right? So the Fed has kind of let us all know they're ready to cut interest rates just because inflation's falling and they want to take a little pressure off the economy. If this CPI report comes in and it's hotter than Wall Street expected, they might have to pair those expectations and say, hey, we're not willing to cut rates yet. Inflation is still a battle that we're fighting. When you say hot, you mean it's higher than expected, right? The last report was 3.4% annual inflation. So then it might be even higher than that. Yeah. So on a year-over-year basis, we're still far from the Fed's 2% target. But we've seen some really encouraging month-to-month data, little if any increases. If this month is, is hotter, which we've seen in so many other data points, like really strong services data, manufacturers are starting to pick up. That could, you know, change the monthly course and then put some pressure under the year-over-year figures. You know, if we get to 3.6, 3.7, 3.8, we're going in the wrong direction. In terms of where the Fed wants the economy to go. Exactly. Yeah. We've also seen a couple recent data points that have shown rising prices for American businesses, especially in the service sector. 
Is that part of what's stoking this worry? It definitely doesn't help. So the strong services sector has been really fueled by consumer spending, the tight labor market, and that's all fine. We like to see economic growth. It's part of why the stock market has been doing so well in recent months. But in a recent Institute for Supply Management survey, the prices that businesses were paying rocketed higher. One of the biggest increases we've seen in months, if not years. And that's a worry that, hey, you know, the whole supply chain snag, goods inflation of the pandemic story has really been over. You know, goods inflation is not something we've been worrying about. But if businesses start charging more because they're receiving higher input costs, then that just raises prices across the board. And we're talking about goods versus services. Give me an example. So services might be you're buying an experience, you're traveling, you're going to a Taylor Swift concert. Goods it always being, comes back to Taylor Swift, it all, it? The economy seems to revolve around her these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, goods would be the other side of the equation. Gotcha. And goods are just basically things you buy, a couch, a table, a TV. Yeah. So for the most part, inflation on those things is, has been gone or kind of moderated, like I've said. Uh, one of the worries, though, is that that picks back up again. So let's say the housing sector starts to, you know, heat up a little bit. People start buying homes as mortgage rates come down. Well, if I buy a home, I need a fridge. I maybe need a car because I moved to the suburbs. So if people start buying those, you know, you can start raising prices on those things. And then that also could support inflation. So there's goods, there's services. So far, CPI has been really supported by services. If I'm an analyst and I see, whoa, goods inflation's picking up a little bit, that would be really worrying for the path of CPI. Mm. We've talked about a lot of inputs to inflation, a lot of things that could be, you know, moving the needle on inflation. What is the biggest question about inflation right now? I think the biggest question that a lot of investors are waiting to see more evidence for is where does it kind of stabilize? We're at 3.4%. We want to get to 2 there's a number of investors who don't think it's going to shoot back up to five or six, barring some crazy thing that no one sees yet. But a lot of people are worried it stays sticky around 3%. What does the Fed do in that situation? Does it require economic pain to really bring it down? Are we okay with 3% inflation, especially after we just saw such a surge? We're not sure, but it would definitely be worrying to policymakers to see inflation not make more substantial progress lower. That was Eric Wallerstein. He covers markets here at The Wall Street Journal, and we will both be up bright and early on Tuesday morning to dig into the CPI report. Up next, we're going to talk about my favorite holiday, Valentine's Day. That's a lie. I hate it. I hate it so much. I'll tell you why when we come back. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. And I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. One more thing before we get out of here. Let's talk about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not give you the silent treatment because you didn't buy the right present on February 14th. 
Love is this awe-inspiring force that can make us weak and can make us strong and hurt us more than anything we ever thought possible and heal us in ways we never imagined. Love is beauty, love is wonder, love is euphoria. And Valentine's Day tells us that the way we express this inexplicable, indescribable feeling in our hearts is to buy stuff. Yeah, I'll pass. But Valentine's Day, like most tentpole holidays, gives us some useful insight into consumer behavior and where money is moving. I spoke to Catherine Cullen, Vice President for Industry and Consumer Insights at the National Retail Federation, a trade group that tracks consumer spending. Here's what she told me about Valentine's Day 2024. We are seeing a few things pop this year. You know, in terms of where people shop, it really does vary depending on what they're planning to gift. Online is certainly a top destination, but people are still planning to head into department stores or uh, discount stores. We know discount has been a growing channel for things like greeting cards or, or things like candy. Um, but we are seeing um, more consumers than ever are planning to gift jewelry this year. Um, so whether they're purchasing online or through a department store or a specialty retailer, just under a quarter are saying they plan to gift jewelry. And we're seeing total spend on that segment is, you know, up to about $6.4 billion, um, almost a billion dollars more than people planned to spend last year. That big pickup in jewelry spending could be meaningful for public companies like Signet Jewelers, which owns brands like Jared, Kay, and Zales. It could also move the needle for stocks like eBay and The Real Real, which have boosted their offerings of fashion and jewelry. Listen, I think Valentine's Day commodifies and commercializes love and just generally kind of sucks. But this week, I'll be watching for headlines on spending to see what this made-up holiday tells us about the economy. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, February 11th. This show is produced by Charlotte Gartenberg. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Melanie Roy is our supervising producer. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabot. Stay smart.